Good morning, Encounter Church. We are so glad to be able to worship together. My name is Dirk, lead pastor here. And today, this weekend is a special weekend at Encounter because it's Welcome Weekend. And what that means is that we are officially welcoming another congregation that has been worshiping with Encounter for a little while now and saying, hey, you are officially and unanimously deciding to be a part of the Encounter family. So Mayfair Church, we just want to say welcome to you this weekend. And by the way, if you have a connection to Mayfair Church or the Fulton Heights community in Grand Rapids, Michigan, make sure to leave a comment in the section below. We want to hear about it. We want to celebrate with you. Uh, Fulton Heights Mayfair Church is a, uh, is a church that's located just outside of Medical Hill in downtown Grand Rapids in a little neighborhood called Fulton Heights. And uh, as the next uh, months uh, will show us and lead us, we're going to see how God is going to turn this church into Encounter Fulton Heights. And we can't wait to see what God is going to do with that next. And this is a great weekend. I think it's a perfect weekend to welcome in another church uh, because we are talking about families in our series, But God, today. So we're continuing on the series. This is part four of five, where we're taking a look at those two powerful words, but God, as they're used in the story of God, the Bible. And these two incredible words, but God, show us times when God interrupts, when God intervenes and makes the future so much brighter than the past. And so today we're taking a look at families. And we're taking a look at how sometimes families are dysfunctional. Sometimes families even fall apart. But God interrupts. But God intervenes. But God does something incredible. So I love what one person said about families. Uh, it's a common saying that's out there that families are a lot like ice cream sundaes. They're mostly sweet with a little nuts sprinkled in. And so I just want to kind of invite you to think for just a second. Who are the, the nuts in your family? And if nobody immediately comes to mind, just hold on to that just for a second, because it might just be you. And this is a dangerous thing for me, because as I was worshiping earlier uh, with everybody, I, I noticed a lot of family members tuning in all around North America. So you can call me your family nut. That's, that's just fine. What we're doing is we're taking a look again. Families falling apart. Families starting to, to rip apart. There's like this, uh, this generalized sense of anxiety that we're all experiencing because of the virus and quarantine that I kind of, I wanted to call this one instead of families fall apart. But God, I wanted to just call it quarantine quarrels. Because a lot of times that's where we're in right now. We're having these quarantine quarrels. Have you had one? I know I have. A quarantine quarrel is one of those silly little fights or these little arguments that you might have with somebody around you, probably a family member, that you never would have had in a different context if you weren't like locked in and shut down with people. And so the quarantine quarrel that I've had recently, right, I kind of, my family is down to, uh, to one car. We share one because I can't imagine my wife and I needing to be in two separate locations at the same time away from home. So we share a car, you know, and I use it. I pull into the driveway, I walk in, and my, my wife looks at me and she's like, where'd you go? I said, the grocery store. And she said, did you wash your hands? I said, of course I wash my hands. She said, did you wash the car key? And I hesitated, and that was my problem. I hesitated, and she noticed I hesitated, so she says, you're hesitating. And I said, no, I washed the car key. And she's like, how good did you wash it? Now, friends, that's an argument. That's a fight that will ensue. That is a quarantine quarrel. Never in my life would I think that I'd be arguing about how, how thoroughly I sanitized our family car key. 
What's your quarantine quarrel? We could probably use a laugh, so leave that in the comment section below too. And maybe it'll avoid some pain for the rest of us a little bit later on to say, hey, listen, is this one of those quarantine things? Is this, is this really like what we want to be doing and spending our time? But what this does, this generalized sense of anxiety, it starts to pull apart. It starts to, to pull at us and our families. And then the seams start to show. And some of those threads might even start to break apart. And you think about family as like maybe your wife, your husband, the kids, people that you live with. It might be your roommates. It might be whoever is in that house with you. I know there's some seams there that are pulling right now. Your family could be that small division or the group or the, so the group of people that you work with on a day-to-day -day basis. And it, you just get tired of each other or tired of seeing each other only over uh, video chats. And it's this generalized sense of anxiety. And it starts to, to pull at the seams. It starts to show. Like a lot of times right now, we're in a place where it seems like our state and our, our country is starting to pull apart a little bit and the different perspectives that we have. And we as a family are experiencing that and the, the threads are starting to pull apart. And so we need a but God story now, maybe, maybe more than ever before, a time when God interrupts and God intervenes and makes the future so much brighter than we thought when we we're living in the past. And so that's what I want to do with us this morning. I want, to, I want to share one of these, but God, family stories when God put this family on an entirely new trajectory. So we're going to go to Genesis chapter 31, and I'll let you have a minute here to find it in your Bible at home or on your Bible app. Genesis is an easy book to find. It's the first book of the Bible. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 31 and see about uh, the family of Jacob. And as we do, uh, just kind of remember that saying that, Families are a lot like uh, ice cream sundaes, sweet with a lot of nuts. This family is mostly nuts. I think you're going to see what I mean right here. Genesis 31, we're going to kick it off in verse 1, and it starts off with this. It just says that Jacob heard that Laban, that's his uncle. So Jacob is the nephew. Laban is the uncle's sons. We're saying this is his cousins. Hey, Jacob has taken everything our father owned and has gained all this wealth from what belonged to our father. And Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude toward him was not what it had been. So Jacob picks up on this. He's like, I, I think I'm kind of getting this cold shoulder. These dirty looks. It whispers around the tent. Ah, what's up with that? Now, I said that this family was mostly nuts. I meant it. Sometimes you think about the people in the Bible are all heroes. Oh, no, not this one. Genesis is full of families. This is just a disaster family. So however dysfunctional you think your family is, just read Genesis for a little while. It's going to make you feel, if anything else, so much better about your family. But this is the deal here. Jacob, I mean, he's, he's as dysfunctional as, as they come. And Jacob's looking at his uncle Laban, and Laban doesn't like him anymore, and there's these like dirty looks and whispers and things like that. We, we got we to realize Jacob deserved every one of those dirty looks that he got. Because Jacob hatched his plan, right? He's working for his uncle, and his uncle says, okay, well, what's your payment going to be? And so Jacob goes, well, let's just keep things simple. Um, I'll take these few speckled, yeah, spotted sheep, and you can have the white ones, the, like, uh, the, the you know, pure, uh, uh, totally blemish-free sheep, the majority of them. And his uncle looks at him and goes, oh, that sounds fair. Well, Jacob figured out this way to, like, have his speckled sheep mate with the blemish-free, white, spot-free sheep. And so that like over a few generations go by, and all of a sudden now almost all of the sheep are spotted and speckled. And so Laban is looking at this thing, and his Laban's sons, Jacob's cousins, are looking over this whole thing going like, 
oh no, I think I see what you did. You found a way to like basically steal the entire farm out from our dad, out from your uncle. That's Jacob. He's a little bit of a trickster. He, he's a cheat. But he's a cheat, you could make the case, only because his uncle was a cheat first. So Jacob shows up on scene running away from his past, his family. He shows up on scene and he, he meets Laban. He meets this guy, right? And he, and he falls in love with the proverbial farmer's daughter. And Laban goes, hey, you can marry my daughter if you want. I, you know, that's great, but uh, you got to work for me for seven years first. And so he works for his uncle for seven years, right, to, to, marry, to marry the farmer's daughter. And lo and behold, the wedding day comes before the ceremony. Jacob gets so loaded that he ends up marrying the wrong woman. Laban did the old switcheroo there, which is a cautionary tale on just a number of different levels. But now Jacob has to work seven more years to marry the right daughter from Laban. I mean, you could make this argument. This family is so dysfunctional. It's just, it's so broken. It's all over the place. And then you go back a generation and you see how I, Jacob's parents, uh, uh, Isaac and Rebecca treated each other and how they were cheating each other out and cheating his older brother Esau. And this whole thing is just entirely, entirely messy. And there's no possible way that we can trace all of the dysfunction throughout the entire generation. I just want to leave it at this one simple truth that all families are dysfunctional. I mean, can we just agree on that? Can we just agree to like ditch the, the, the concept of a perfect family out there? It doesn't exist. All families are dysfunctional. You know why? Because of this three-letter word called sin. Because sin exists in the world. And sin exists in the world like, like air, water, pollution exists. And we breathe it in and we drink it in and there's no way we can even get out from under it. That sin is just the air that we breathe, the water that we drink. It's all around us all the time. And it just taints and ruins everything. And that's why all families, every one of them, since the beginning of time now, just have some level of dysfunction or another. It's even in my family. I had one of these quarantine quarrels with a brother of mine. And I had to call him up earlier this week and say, listen, this is silly. We don't want this to define our relationship. We don't want a little thing to become a big thing and then ultimately to become a defining thing. We value the relationship more than that. And we've had to do, a lot of us have had to do things like that. We just acknowledge that families are dysfunctional. It's probably appropriate on this weekend, welcome weekend, that we're welcoming in another church into the Encounter family. It's just like heads up. If you've been looking for the perfect church family, if you find it, caution, don't join it. Because if you join it, it won't be perfect anymore. <laughs> because it never was. We're dysfunctional. Sin is all over the place. You got to know. You got to know that it's just, it's even in God's family. I hear stories about how people like romanticize the, the early church and how great that was and how perfect that was. Newsflash, half of the New Testament was written by church leaders just cautioning people just cautioning people um, uh, to, to get their act together, to, to root out sin, to do better, to be better, to believe more. I mean, come on, the perfect family, not even God's family, the church is perfect. And that's kind of the point. We acknowledge it and we realize it. Our families have all kinds of hurts and hangups and heartache. And that all families at some level or another are dysfunctional. But that doesn't stop God from acting. L listen to what happens next 
And we'll just go on to the next, very next verse. In verse three, it says that, then the Lord said to Jacob, go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. God is saying to Jacob, go back to the people that wanted to like kill me. I mean, my brother ran me out of town. He wants to hurt me so bad. Go back. And we're going to skip now. We're going to go to verse 22 because God was saying something uh, to his uncle at the same time. 22. Uh, On the third day, Laban was told that Jacob had fled. And Jacob didn't tell anybody that he was leaving. That's the point. Taking his relatives with him, he pursued Jacob for seven days and caught up with him in the hill country of Gilead. Then God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream at night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now, I'd love to get into the content of each of these messages that God gave to Jacob and his uncle Laban, and just to see how God made good on all of that and what God was doing behind the scenes this entire time. But that's for another message in another series. The simple point this morning that I want to remind you of is that God was simply speaking. God was sharing it with them. God was talking directly into their lives in a way that they could understand and that the way they could see God moving. That's the point. The point that no matter how broken they were, the point that no matter how dysfunctional these two men were, the point is that no matter how many whispers were among the tents, no matter how many cold shoulders were giving, no no, no matter how, how much disdain they had for one another, the point was that God refused to let them go and he was speaking to them and God is refusing to let you go here today and he's speaking to you this morning. Our truth number one is that, listen, on one level or another, all families are dysfunctional. We build on that to say God will function in our dysfunction. God functions in your dysfunction. He has no choice otherwise not to because we're all broken and we're all dysfunctional because of that three-letter word called sin that I mentioned earlier. God chooses to to, to move in among broken people because that's the only people who exist. We're all broken. And he says, and he says, no matter what, I'm with you always. And I'm moving among you even now. That's a pretty incredible welcome weekend message there too, isn't it? That God is moving. And that God is speaking, even in a broken family, like our church family. Collection of hurting people. You know, to be honest, there's a lot of um, organizations right now, a lot of people that are experiencing that heartache and hurt and pain. And so right now, the narrative around a lot of places is that we're just trying to hold on as long as we can. Or we're trying not to not to lose too much or we're not trying to, we're trying not to, to have our losses be too great. I just want to speak to those of you who have been with Encounter Church for a while now on this journey. And on one hand, just to say thank you. I was working on a few things earlier and, and I was in the building here and my wife was with me as we were walking around the property outside and I just looked at her and I said, I am so profoundly grateful for all the people of Encounter Church who have hung with, worshiped with and through us in this battle and have brought this church to a place this weekend where our story and our narrative is not about how little we're going to lose or how long we can hold on, 
But the story that God is telling, what he's speaking through this church today, is that our vision is going to expand. And there's going to be more people that will hear about this life-changing news of Jesus than ever before. And it is profoundly humbling to be a part of a church community that no matter what setback incurs, we drive forward. So listen, your family and mine, we're dysfunctional as they come. But God will function in my, in your, in our dysfunction. And then it demands a response. Now, continuing on in the passage in the next verse, going back up top, listen to what it says in verse 4 here. So Jacob sent word to Rachel and Leah to come out to the fields where his flocks were. And he said to them, I see that your father's attitude towards me is not what it was before. And then those two beautiful, powerful words, but God. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I've worked for your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me by changing my wages 10 times. You get the sense that every time he changed the wages, it wasn't like a promotion or a raise. It probably went the other way. But God was with me. And then, however, God has not allowed him to harm me. You notice a, a, a renewed emphasis of Jacob on the faith of his childhood, on the faith that his dad taught him, that his dad taught him in the generation previous. That for the first time in his life, Jacob, he's not running away from his problems. He's not hiding. He's not overly confrontational. He's not looking for a fight. Growth has happened because he took his, he took his focus and he centered it squarely on God instead of his issue. And that's what we're asking. That's what I'm asking you to do today is to focus on God and growth will come. Focus on God and growth will come. You see what Jacob does in the story is he's a, he just, he gets a, a set of lenses, right? He gets a set of glasses and, and instead of seeing what's around him all the time, he uses those lenses, he uses those glasses to see what God might be up to and where God is moving. And so all of these setbacks that he's seen, he's got a demotion 10 times. I don't think there's anybody listening or watching this today that has gotten a demotion 10 times in a row and lived to tell the tale or like stayed around the company long enough. Yet here Jacob is 10 times in a row. Yet, yet God, however, God, but God was present with him. He's using his lenses and he's focusing on God and growth happens. Instead of running away, instead of hiding, instead of being overly confrontational, he sits down, he addresses his problems directly and to the point. And he sits down and he talks it through and he comes to a solution. What can read on and on and on in the chapters that follow this is that, is that he's got a long way to go. Don't get me wrong, but he's growing. He's focusing on God and growth will come. You focus on God and your growth is going to come too and your circumstances will change. Focus on God and growth will come. When? How long have we got to wait? So there's this, uh, this book I came across. Um, name of it here is by Richard Hoffler. The name of it is, Will Daylight Come? And in the book, there's a little story that I wanted to share with you to wrap up our time together. There's a story about little Johnny who's hanging out with grandma and grandpa for the weekend. And they get him his very first slingshot ever. And he goes out into the woods and he gets some pebbles, you know, some stones, and he's trying it out. He's doing target practice. 
And it seems like, like whatever, whatever he's targeting is like the one thing that he's guaranteed not to hit. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't even come close. He's got a tin can up there. He's pulling it back, whipping him off. And it just doesn't even, he's frustrated and he's tired and it's getting afternoons. It's getting lunchtime. And so he goes back home. He gets onto the property of his grandparents' uh, little hobby farm. And he sees his grandmother's pet duck out there in the yard. And in his frustration and impulse, this little boy, he goes down, he picks up a stone, whips it, and just aims for the duck, knowing that that's the one thing he's not going to hit. Lo and behold, a rock sails through the air and clocks the duck in the side of the head. It just drops over dead immediately. Johnny panics. He's like, what? You've got to be kidding me. I dropped it and it was just like one shot? And so he walks up to the duck and he holds it. He hides it behind a, a wood pile. And then he looks around for any witnesses. And he sees his sister, Sally, watching and doesn't say a word. He sits down for lunch that afternoon. And then after lunch is done, his grandma stands up from the table and says, Sally, uh, I think it's your turn. Would you help me with the, with the dishes? And Sally pipes up and goes, actually, that's been taken care of. Johnny, you said that you would be happy to help Grandma with the dishes, right? While I go outside and play? And she looks over at Johnny and she says to him, remember the duck. Johnny helps Grandma with the dishes. Comes back. They're playing in the yard more comes time when grandpa says hey johnny it's time for us to go out fishing sally has a bunch of chores and she just didn't get to she's got to go out and feed the animals sally goes actually grandpa johnny said that he would do those chores for me as well he would feed the animals and, and he wanted me to go fishing with you this morning instead and she looked back at johnny and whispered those same words remember the duck well this goes on for hours and then for a couple of days and Johnny just had absolutely way too much. So he, she does it to him one more time. He breaks down. He runs over to his grandma. And he get, he's in tears and he's sobbing. And he says, Grandma, Grandma, I am so sorry. I feel so bad. I was playing with the slingshot that you got me. And, and, and I shot your duck and I killed it. And I just, I feel awful about it, Grandma. I'm so sorry. And she just gives him that big hug right back and says, I know. And I forgive you. I love you. I saw the entire thing take place out my kitchen window. I was just wondering how long you were going to let Sally make you a slave. That's the question that I want to leave you with, church. How long are you going to let your dysfunction or your hurt hang up your heartache in your past? Whatever way that your sense of family has been ripping apart, how long are you going to let that make you a slave? How long are you going to let that thing decide and dictate your life on its terms? How long are you going to let that thing lead you into the future? Is it maybe time now to turn it over to Jesus and say, listen, I know that I'm dysfunctional. I know that I'm polluted by that three-letter word, sin. 
And Jesus, you see the dysfunction and you love me the same. You sat down from heaven and you took all of it on and all of that shame and all of that guilt, all of that three-letter word, that dysfunction, you took it all on your shoulders and you died with it on the cross and you left it there in the grave when you rose up to new life on Easter Sunday morning. Jesus, I don't want to be yet to a slave anymore, Jesus, because I want to serve you. And if you're ready to follow after Jesus, if you're ready to give your life to the only cause or the only person that's ever going to give your life back to you, we want to hear about it. Pray with me at the end of our message this morning. Send us a direct message. Send us an email at prayer at encounterchurch.org. We have people ready on standby to welcome you in to the broken but forgiven dysfunctional family of God that he speaks into. Let's pray together this morning. Our gracious God, you have done incredible things. God, you see us in our hurt. You see our family heartache and you love us all the same. God, we pray this morning that you give us the courage to put our life in your hands, to not be defined by our hurts anymore. God, give us the lenses this week, no matter where we're pulling apart, to see you on the move. Jesus, it's in your victorious name that we pray all of this. And we said all together, throughout the world. Amen.